0: this week on the back table podcast and the cool thing is when i speak with hospital executives and ask them what what do you have or like any ai platform because i always imagine there it's somewhere out there like you know maybe not in the imaging maybe they have something in the icu right. or the ed yeah. or or somewhere i was astounded the answer is this is it imaging ai is by far the most mature clinical AI space by far. And that gives, I think, all of us company in the the space such a massive opportunity to become that enterprise AI platform. Kind of the message, I think, is that imaging AI is the beginning, but it's only the beginning. I think it's going to be part of a broader care transformation journey for AI.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you will hear stories from physician entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. First, a brief message from our sponsor. All right, Backtable listeners, our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started using AG1 because my trainer used it, or uses it, and uh, I asked him why, and he said, well, you know, I feel like I, I get faster recovery and I sleep better at night, uh, and so I learned more about it, and I actually got some free samples, and I uh, started taking it, and then I told Mike and Sabine about it. What do you guys think about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I started taking AG1 because uh, my brother-in-law, he was actually taking it for the past year, and he kept on telling me how awesome it is, and then you, asked me if i wanted to try it aaron and you know i thought this would be a perfect opportunity to yeah i I don't get some free samples right exactly get some free samples i i don't have time in the morning to eat breakfast or anything so i was like this would be perfect Let let me give it a shot so i started taking it because i am susceptible to peer pressure and you guys did it and and also because i got free samples but uh the free samples was a big part of that for me yeah. And so, you know, you're taking some a supplement. You kind of want to ask me hey, what's in this stuff. Uh, well, with one scoop of AG1, you're actually absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. What exactly are adaptogens, Michael Bratza? Do you know? Uh, I think they come from space. <laughs> that sounds they, about they, right. The ADAPT technique—you suck the clot. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> they suck out they, the toxins. Yeah, like you're the, doing a back to me. It's yeah, like it's yeah, a yeah. suck-out thing. <laughs> that's science. See, it all no, It's hopes... green. It's—I mean—it's literally green. I feel healthy drinking it because it's green. And and anything I see when they say superfoods or the smoothies, there, it's like super greens. I mean, this thing is green. And it actually, to me, I like the taste, so. Well, it's I think green, it's- but you know, when you shake it up, it, it starts to turn kind of white a little bit. And I think that's the adaptogens that are, that are alive in there and that are working. And I, I look, man, if it's in my head, it's working. That's uh- right. And it does support mental clarity and alertness. And your subscription comes with a year supply of vitamin D, which is very important for us radiologists. Um, (laughs) I know mine was like critically low my vitamin D level when I checked it, Uh, so that helps. And it it comes in this little dropper. I just drop, you know, one little drop in my topo chico every day, and I know I get (laughs) my vitamin D. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash backtable, I-N-N, as in innovation. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now, back to the episode. Today, we have a very special guest, Elad Wallach from ADOC. Welcome, Elad.
0: Uh, hey, Aaron. Uh, thanks for
1: having me. Sure. Yeah. We've been, uh, you know, I think you and I have been messaging back and forth on LinkedIn for a few years now. At least I know I've been following you on LinkedIn and uh, reading, you know, the articles about a doc. I used to call it, actually, you'll catch it on some of our prior episodes. I, ca- <laughs> I called it AI doc for the longest <laughs> time. And uh, and then I started, I, we had Susie Bash on recently and she yeah. was calling it a doc. We had um, Eric Oglu, and he corrected me as well on the show. And so uh, you you know ADOC has come up many times in prior conversations on the show, and I'm really fortunate that you're taking the time. Are you uh, in Miami? Is that where you're
0: at? I am. I am in Miami. And by the way, the ADOC versus AADOC is a, is a funny story because you know for the longest time it, it was it was a big debate, like what are we more? And we chose it. Actually, is a choice. Like we said, you know, we're more about aiding the doctor versus us being an AI company. So we chose that that phrasing. Uh,
1: yeah, I like that. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, a-, a doc. Yeah, instead of AI doc. Yeah, um, and so not so much emphasis on the AI, more on the doc. Exactly. But so so Elot is co-founder and CEO of ADOC, a radiology artificial intelligence startup focused on using deep learning to relieve the bottleneck in medical image diagnosis. Uh, Elad is an expert in AI with visionary business insight in the healthcare space. Uh, Elad was listed in Forbes' 30 Under 30 Europe Science and Healthcare category, so um, very, very impressive uh, resume. And I've followed you on LinkedIn for a few years now. Again, um, really excited to have you on. I want to start out with just you know an introduction and kind of background about you, where you're from. Tell us a little bit about ADOC. I know it's based out of Israel, but how that kind of works with with you back and forth in the U.S. And then we'll talk a little bit about your time in the Israeli Air Force.
0: Yeah, so my background is actually, I've you know never been entrepreneur, didn't know anything about healthcare. Um, and you're right, I was like everybody from Israel, you know, served in the military. Uh, I was fortunate to be in this um, program. So a lot, a lot of times in Israel, you've kind of get screened to these programs. And I was this program where you say, serve for about 10 years, in the military, and the benefit is that it catapult you to technology leadership positions. So, at a fairly young age, uh, twenty-two, I think it was, I've headed AI uh, for the Air Force. Uh, was honestly thoroughly joined that. Finished the service there. I met my two co-founders, Michael and Guy. We knew each other forever. You know, we've been together through boot camp, lived together oh, throughout the service. Cool. So, uh, and we knew. We want to do healthcare. It was obvious for us that's where we want to go to. Yeah, you know what? Before I talk more about that, any any more questions? Uh, yeah, so I'm into the origin. You story? know,
1: tell us about this elite Israeli Defense Force technology program.
0: Ta- I'm going to mispronounce it, but tau Taupiot? is that Tawpiot? Yes, Tawpiot. Yeah. So the the origin story of the program it's it's actually interesting. In Israel, they had a big war called Yom Kippur War, where Israel's existence has been called into question. And one of the biggest elements there was that we were technologically surprised. And Israel government, at the end of that war, kind of said, look, we can't ever be technologically surprised again. And the thesis was, how are we going to bring in innovation, continuous innovation and leadership? And that was the origin of the Talpiot program, where the idea is to select about 40 people each year from all of Israel Train them across all facets of of military work, and then catapult them to leadership positions with the perspective that if you bring people that are, you know, high on, let's say, both uh, intelligence and and leadership skills and give them a very broad perspective of the of the military, then they can be they can be very influential in helping connect the dots, uh, which honestly is is a big theme we have across healthcare as well it's it's not just about the tech it's about having a deep understanding of the whole ecosystem and where you can play a role in bridging gaps
1: got it and, and so and you're you're not a physician but you you were interested in the healthcare space and we'll talk about that in a minute but tell me about the like where you're interested in computer science were you like one of those kids building computers when you were like 10 like tell us a little bit about when that interest in Computer science started, and kind of how that evolved into getting into the military.
0: Well, I, I've never built computers, but I always loved the programming uh, from a very yeah. young age. I don't remember when was my first computer program. I did go to university at a fairly young age, I think it was 15 or 16, kind of at least part time, and you know obviously did a computer science degree. I worked more on it in the top year program, and what I really fell in love with is the concept of making computer do stuff. Like I I always loved connecting programs with the real world. So one, I remember in my, during my degree, there was this very cool article from the, from the MIT media lab where they were able to just from, you know, uh, webcams, see your heart rate and, and pulse. And I was so, I was so awestruck by, by the fact that you could just by looking at webcam measure that. That I decided I have to implement something like that. So just just you know, just out of pure you know interest and curiosity, I've worked like months on implementing my own version of that. and uh, I, I just I love when computers can actually do stuff that impact the real world. I think that's that's where it's it, for me, it's much more about that than you know, building the coolest algorithm or anything like that. It's much more about making stuff happen,
1: yeah. did you were you ever into robotics in that sense where you're programming yes. like a ro- robot? like,
0: yeah all the you know it was i today they have first it was like a version of that robotics this was in high school, actually, so we've had this uh we've built this cool well we yeah, we're building with robots playing around with that, but i always i honestly just enjoying over time the more like non hardware and just pure software, I got more excited about that because, like you can, without just using like very simple tools, you know, the, the, the sensor you have on your mobile phone or, Mm. or a webcam, you could just do so much, uh, if you have the, if you dig into that.
1: Gotcha. And, and so was there some part of your upbringing? You you mentioned that when you got to the Israeli air force and and you met your co-founders, you guys knew you wanted to do something in the healthcare space. Yeah. And we can kind of use that to transition to the Genesis of ADOC, but Tell us about why healthcare in particular.
0: Well, probably don't have to sell you on it, but uh, but we really look. I really do believe that every business adds value, and and you know they're all amazing. But we really wanted to feel this direct impact on people's lives. It, it's a, it's a personal it's a personal choice, but you know we've got a, a text message from a physician just just last week where they told us about this patient. That was an outpatient, so nobody's expected anything urgent, and that patient had a massive pulmonary embolism, which we flagged and prioritized, yeah. and that patient would have waited for days before they're getting their diagnosis. So before talking too much about what we do, essentially hearing those patient stories about people whose lives we've impacted, I think it's it what makes all of us tick, and that's where we really wanted to go into healthcare.
1: Yeah. And did you guys like growing up were any of your family members physicians or anybody that uh in your immediate sort of circle that was in healthcare already that helped influence that?
0: Well, the closest one is is my dad. So that my dad is a big influence on influence on my whole life. Um and he was actually an IBM uh Watson at the time, one of the originators actually of their health program. So I remember, so look, my dad, you should imagine, you know, he's, he's, you know, Russian in background and, and like super nerdy guy. I, I, you know, I can say that. And, uh, one time I came back home, I remember this vividly and he's like, um, son, come, come look at, at, you know, at images of breast. And I'm like, oh, wow. You know, finally my dad is (laughs) opening up being cool. And then I'm like looking at the computer, I'm seeing like mamo exams, you know, mammography (laughs) exams with like AI markers are on them. So. That was his version, Um, and uh, yes, so obviously that influenced me. I I always say that I don't think he, you know, he didn't push me or nudge me in any way, but I I did end up uh, in the same domain as he was really passionate about, so.
1: Yeah, that's very cool. I remember reading that about about you and your dad, that he had worked on the Watson early days, right, with IBM. Is he still working with them?
0: No, he he retired. He's actually working uh, with us now, so that's... uh, Amazing. Yes. Yeah. So, That's we very keep cool. enjoying that.
1: Yeah. So let's transition to into like the Genesis A doc. You guys, you and your co-founders, you're in the Israeli Air Force. You're working on AI projects. Tell us about like what when the light bulb went off, and you know you guys were roommates, right? Or yeah, were you, yeah, and you're just kind of hanging around, shooting ideas with each other. How did that happen? How that unfold?
0: Yeah. So. Thinking back about this, like, we knew, we knew nothing about healthcare, right? So, like, literally nothing. And then we also knew nothing about entrepreneurship, right? So that, that was, a, let's call it the killer combo. Um, <laughs> and we knew we had to catch up very quickly. So on the medical side, first of all, we've had someone uh, working with us from, you know, very early days, Dr. Ghalyaniv, and who's now our chief medical officer. And he, so he was a physician and uh, he's a neurointerventionalist. And uh, he was working with us from from the early days as well. So helping think of ideas. And I think it's exactly as you mentioned, we're sitting, you know, in the apartment and you know, starting to whiteboard ideas. We've had I don't know, a list of 20, 30, something like that. But the one thing we really believed in is that there is a framework for startups called the lean startup methodology. Yeah. So the those no no know, I think it's honestly drives our thinking today, which essentially says The biggest factor in startup is the risk and uncertainty. So you, each of us, when we think about like a cool idea, sort of startup, it has sorts of assumptions. So you need to write down those assumptions, those hypotheses, and you need to start testing them out kind of in an experimental way. So that's what we did. You know, we had the list of 20 ideas and we just started spending time in hospitals and asking people annoying questions until we started hitting on, you know, some problems that people were like, look, I need this. Right away. Yeah. And radiology wasn't the first. It was like the the fifth or sixth event. You know, we wanted to do something for surgery and something for ED and something for oncology.
1: Yeah. What were some of those ideas, if you don't mind just sharing, if, if you can remember?
0: So, one, okay. So, one interesting idea, there's a funny story related to that. So, one idea we wanted to do was to develop an app to kind of walk patients through the emergency department because uh, the, the, The thesis was that there was a lot of confusion and people are, you know, want to know where, you know, what to do. So I remember me and the physician, we started spending time in EDs to kind of, and I started asking patients annoying questions. And the funny thing about it is that the one time, you know, we've been at this ED department and we were asking patients, how was your experience in the ED? Like what could have been better? And then like people from the ED came to us and, you know, kind of kicked us out. I was like, you can't go asking my patients, you know, what's wrong with the ED, right? That's not, A good thing for us to do so that that happened and uh so that was one of those ideas where but one of the reasons why we disqualified that we saw that there is you know we felt that there is too much variability and that we can develop something that is like uh what's called a killer yeah. yeah streamlined and like a killer first we really believe in like you want to start with like a first you know Amazing application if you want to get get to there. So we didn't see that, and in radiology it was fairly natural.
1: So once you discovered radiology, was did stroke come out first, like, or was it something else, and then it kind of led you to stroke? Uh, I actually say, back back that up. I don't even know if stroke was your you first algorithm. I, I might be yeah, mistaken.
0: Yeah. Well, you could. It's a brain bleeds, right? So yeah, right, brain bleed. A,
1: yeah, yeah, brain yeah.
0: Bleeding. It is applied to stroke as well, but. Yeah. So our thesis was, okay, so this is the this is the idea. And I am the more we progress, the more I'm a believer in that. So the problem is not for a certain disease necessarily. The problem is we thought much broader than that. And that the fact that today in radiology departments, you just have such have such a massive overload of data and, and not enough and not enough radiologists. This is a worldwide problem. But I'll I'll share with you one thing I recently Spoke with the head head of the Imaging Council for Israel, and he shared with me, and you know, obviously, most of our market is in the US, but I think it applies. He told me he started practicing about thirty years ago, in like nineteen nineties, and at the time, there were about five hundred radiologists in Israel. And he said since then we had new modalities, new resolutions, you know, more and more imaging, aging population, you name it. How many radiologists do we have today in Israel? Maybe you could hazard a guess. Five hundred. Five hundred.
1: <laughs> yeah, right? It's crazy.
0: When you think about that, it's like, oh my god! So the thesis was, is that you cannot solve a single disease. That's not. That's not the way hospitals work. A yeah. radiology department is is much more comprehensive than that. And if you will do like one point solution at a time. What you're gonna get is 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 a is a hospital that needs to work with like a thousand different vendors. You know, one doing a stub toe, one doing whatever, yeah, cancer, one doing stroke. So, what's different about ADOC in the in the ecosystem today is that we're just that much more comprehensive. And that that was the thesis is that AI is not a point solution. AI is a platform. It must be in order to be well adopted. So yes, Bramley was our first use case, but like from day one when we interacted with the market, they knew the vision, ADOC story, is not about a single disease. It's about a platform that can detect dozens of diseases over time, granted over time, but be that transformation partner in order to have an AI-driven workflow, if that Got makes it. sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so so what led you to brain bleed being the first case use, like the first MVP sort of?
0: Yeah, it's just very common. Right. Yeah, uh, there was a lot of these patients. the The pain point is fairly clear. So that was is- was there a doc? Was there a
1: radiologist who said, "Oh, I, I, you know, it would be great if you detected all these things." But top of my list is brain bleed. Like, is that? Did you come to that with questionnaires?
0: We did, but but I just wanna I wanna clarify that point. Like, even from day one, it was never about a single disease. It was uh, well, okay. you know, we have yeah. seven things we need to do. Uh, yeah, in the early days. Let's pick one of them, right? So Bramley was definitely one of the most mature ones because, because it's so common. It's probably one of the most common yeah. diseases out there that is also critical, mainly diagnosed with CT. So right. we did have these questionnaires and talking with docs, but even from the early days, we knew that it's like, okay, we're going to do one, but like immediately after spine fractures and immediately after that pulmonary embolism, it you. wasn't yeah. it wasn't one thing for sure.
1: Okay, so you created a list and kind of prioritized yes. how you are going to implement it. I see, I see, yeah.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: Cool. And so was your initial role, like you had, you had two other co-founders. How did you guys yes. say, okay, I'm going to be this guy. You're going to be this guy. You're going to be this guy. How did you guys parse out, you know, delegate the the work?
0: Oh, I, I love that question because look, we've all, all came from the same background, right? So one could yeah. argue different personalities, right? For sure. But like, you just look at our CVs, it was fairly, you know, fairly similar. I, I will say two things. A, there was some personal affinity, right? And we took our jobs in the early days very, very seriously, right? So me as a CEO, I knew I have to learn, you know, learn finance, learn legal, you know, be able to be from a tech founder to really, a, you know, a business leader and uh, get mentors, business mentors and all of that. So I did have more affinity to that in terms of what I wanted to do as well. And what, what I think where my skills lie is much more in bridging the gap. And my co-founders were incredible and and very supportive from the early days they were like look you know let's let you uh, have a run at it and um the one thing i will share that we've been since we decided on the roles and it was like in the very early days we took our jobs very seriously a lot of it for investors so my cto is the master in that he's always thinking like how to like storytelling team storytelling let's call it this yeah. way so whenever we come came into investor meetings he was always like asking me what, how I'm gonna dress, and like dressing like one level just a bit below me. And he always, when we came into meetings, obviously I'm a tech founder, right? You know, so I know how to handle myself in a computer. But he was like, no, 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 let me, let me hook you up with the presentation. I, I, you know, I did like I can't even, you know, play around with the PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> and he always set me up, and it was funny. You know, those are the small funny stories of the early days. But it was important that we all played our part. Because yeah. it's important for customers, for investors to understand, you know, at the end of the day, a team is, is part of the story. You want to create a construct and framework of how it is to work with you. Obviously, since then, we really each evolved professionalizing their own roles. But in the early days, it was more just taking a choice and then professionalizing.
1: Yeah. And it's super important to complement one another in your skill sets, too, right? And you said you guys had a lot of yes. overlap. and you know, you probably, it sounds like you had interest in the business side of it and really grow, you know, developing that out and learning more about it. Did you ever think, did you get an MBA or how did you train yourself on on that?
0: Well, I've, I've just read a million books. Well, I'm obviously exaggerating, but I've, I've, I've been reading, I was listening to a lot of audiobooks and I was listening to like three at a time, like two and a half X speed. Yeah. Just Catching up on dozens and dozens of literature. So that was one big aspect. I do think that reading is, is really essential to catch up. The other thing is that I've had a lot of business mentors to date, by the way, I have mentors that I meet on almost a weekly basis because I understand that almost doesn't matter how long have I been a CEO and now it's you know coming up at uh, five and a half years. I still have so much to learn for the next phase. So I always make sure I have mentors for that next phase of growth. And I think that's essential for any any entrepreneur, by the way, no matter how experienced, but definitely for a first timer like myself.
1: For sure. Cause it's a emotional roller coaster, right? And so there's gonna be great days and there's gonna be really low bad days. And you yeah. gotta have somebody you can trust. And it's almost not just the the business mentorship, but some emotional mentorship of like how to get through that, right? How to how to assist, how to experience that and harness it and not let it defeat you um that's where i've really my some of my mentors have really helped you know not just because they've been through it and they know that it's hard and uh, yeah i I think that's really yeah so let's talk about building a team so you guys had your idea you had your and and then we'll talk about fundraising a little bit but you had your prototype where did you start You, you had the three of you where did you start from there in terms of building a team
0: yeah, so we also had a physician in the early days, yeah. right? Still involved. So he was, let's call it the fourth. I will say that we were. <laughs> it's funny, but in the early days, we're very. Initially, we had. By the way, to date, we really are big believers in hiring for potential, yeah, not necessarily for experience, right? So whenever we had the opportunity to hire a superstar, even if it's not like super proficient in the, I would say, in the role, we we. We would take a bet on a person, and every time we took that bet, we've seen it, you know, blossom. I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. Uh, our first business hire—that was one of the most difficult ones. Um, 10 hire, I think, in the company, and well, I, maybe he will maybe I'll kill me for saying this uh, publicly, but essentially, when we, you know, when we started on, I was super impressed by him throughout like the interview process. He's, he's in the company today. Our uh, VP of business development. So he's the first business hire. He was incredible in the interview process, but a lot of my mentors, by the way, uh, told me that, you know, I shouldn't bet on someone that hasn't, you know, been there, done that. It, this was kind of his first healthcare role. And they told me, look, you know, you shouldn't, you know, you should take someone as, you know, especially as you're an inexperienced team with healthcare, you you know, you should, as first business hire, you should probably take somebody that's been there, done that. And I honestly, I I I kind of told them initially, I I kind of, Told him that I'm not gonna take him for the role because of that, and he then called me up. He said, "Where are you right now? Let's go meet. Let's talk about it." And we we spoke about this, you know, uh, during the evening. Spent like four hours sketching out the role, and I was just at the end of it. I was so so convinced that even though all my mentors told me otherwise, I was like, you know, let's let's make it happen. I have faith. And I can't imagine my life right now uh, without him. He's my, you know, he's my first go-to for every tough decision I have. So, yes, yeah, so building a team is always difficult and you have to balance a lot of experience and hearing from people with gut feeling of on people and where you're taking these bets.
1: Yeah, but cle- yeah, clearly from that story, he sh- he showed commitment right there, right? He's he, he sought you out and sat you down for four hours to convince you that he was right for the role, and I mean that says a lot. Right? That's a, that sounds like an A player, right there. It does for sure. Yeah,
0: it is an A plus plus player. Yes.
1: <laughs> well, that's cool. And and so, how did you guys pay yourselves? I mean, what, like you know, you got this idea, you got this prototype, you got to hire a a, a team and implement it. What did you do to fundraise? Uh, where did you start? And and just we don't have to go into like you know all the money, but like just. Uh, yeah. At least those initial steps, because a lot of our audience is entrepreneurs, and they kind of don't even know where to start.
0: Yeah, it's it, it has been, I would say, difficult in those early days. This was the, the early days of digital health, and we were fundraising in Israel at the time, and that was like very premature space. And yeah. what we got, the answer we got from a lot of investors was, you know, you are great. Yeah, sounds interesting, but we really don't understand enough about the space to make a bet. So if you could get somebody else to lead, then we maybe will follow. Thanks. Thank you a hell lot for that. So <laughs> that was, that, it was, I think it was almost a year before we get our first wow. fundraise. Obviously the situation is very different now for us being kind of a very high growth company, but, but it was very difficult in those early days. So for the entrepreneurs, I will say the first thing, obviously you need to start getting introductions, right? And that is just networking, 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 meeting people that can send you warm introductions Always be thoughtful in every conversation, you know, even if you meet a random, random person, you know, summarize the call, have a great, have a great follow-up email and all of that. And then you build your network and then your network connects to you to more network, which eventually gets you to investors. So that I think is key. And then when you raise money, I think the key is the way I look at raising money is, is essentially it's your first sell, right? You're selling the product, which is the story of the company. So as you do with regular products, keep iterating. After every discussion, debrief, feedback, changes, meaningful changes. It's got to take a lot of time and a lot of trial and error, but in the end of it, you're going to have a killer story that is going to be hopefully very compelling to investors.
1: Yeah. So how you? it sounds like you had like a whole year of rejection. How did you guys handle that? (laughs) That's got to be hard. Were there time? I mean, were there dark days where you're like, I don't know, guys, are we in the right space? Should we pivot? Like, did you guys have any kind of those oh shit moments?
0: Absolutely. Uh, the good thing, however, is that we're three co-founders, right? So- Yeah, um, you could support the, each the hardest, other. Exactly. Like every time one of us falls, right? And then the the other two pick him up. The hardest <laughs> was when we had two, two fall and then the third had to kind of be strong. It, it was incredibly difficult at some times, you know, you're getting a ton, I think we've got an we counted at some point it was definitely the dozens i don't know if we reached a 100 but that's wow. the order of magnitude like it's yeah. it's a lot of nose but i think that we felt that when we speak with users the pain point is so very real that we we had conviction yeah and combined with the fact that we were improving and we were feeling the improvement in the you know reactions of investors um i think that what kind of kept us going throughout that period
1: yeah So were you guys just self-funding yourselves with this conviction? Like just, okay, we'll get to the next step. We'll get to the next step. Did you have to take debt? Uh, Like how did you guys get through that year without any money in the bank to do what you really want to do?
0: Yeah. So we did, by the way, we did decide that we were going to take at least a year to prove this out. So. We just had enough, I would say uh, cash reserves personally, right? So we took, that's a good thing, you know, after being a decade in the army, like we've, we've saved money. So, yeah, you know, we didn't, we weren't in a, you know, that tough of a spot, but obviously we knew that if after a year, this doesn't pan out, we will have to do something, even if it's raised like a small note, but for, for a year we did it, you know, without anything.
1: Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, so I want to. I'm going to switch gears and kind of fast forward a little bit. And you know, you've you've raised money. You've got your team built out. Let's talk about how you implement it. How you you got this MVP, this product, uh, this algorithm. Well, tell tell us first. How did you get all your data to train your algorithm?
0: Yeah, the data the data is really important. Uh, in the early days, was early partners right, so that were willing to create an agreement with us. You know, for for data sharing. So that was the early days. Obviously, since then we grew, and now we have a lot of data sources. But the early days were just a few, uh, even a couple of partnerships to to get started.
1: Yeah, Uh, and and so were there any challenges with trying to partner with people, like, for example, you know, Rad Partners I know is a big partner, or any hospital systems? Did you get rejections in that sense as well?
0: Oh (laughs) yes, absolutely. Look, you know, with all the respect to us. three guys from Israel coming into a US health system saying, hey, you know, love for some data uh, Yeah, <laughs> is not a very is it, a hard story. I think that what we've learned is that it's all about trust and how do you carry yourself professionally. And I think you're just building that trust because look, health health systems data, yes, they A, they want to monetize it, right? So that's one thing you want to one hoop you need to jump through, but more importantly is that it's a very, you know, they take liability, so they have to really trust you in this. So it's about being professional, showing them that you know what you're talking about, that you care about privacy, that you're willing to take the extra step in order to understand them and how to work with them. So I think a lot of it is about educating ourselves on how to talk with health systems and how to alleviate their concerns in terms of their, their data. And I think that was really key. That's one of the things we really learned. The other thing that I will say, is probably um, kind of an obvious tip, but you definitely don't want to rely on just a single source. You want to make sure you're working with multiple at the same time. A, it builds, you know, more brand, right? That the more, more hospitals are chiming in. But you just have to. I think you can't rely on a single a single source of data, even even in the early days. So yeah. I sometimes hear entrepreneurs are like, "Oh, I have agreement with Health System A or B," which is fine. But I think that's just just the beginning. You need you need at least a few to even to get started.
1: Gotcha. Was the focus always on the U.S. healthcare system, or did you guys have? You know, were you thinking about UK or you know somewhere in Europe or you know the Middle East? Uh, tell us about. How you made the decision to just kind of focus on u s or or if it was just it just kind of happened that way
0: yeah we it was a very conscious decision to focus on the u s you know it is the biggest health system uh in the world yeah, and uh where a lot of money and decisions are being made so I will say two things made us you know choose a, first of all we we realized that you cannot work in too many different markets right the yeah. the chain of value and money you just have to deeply deeply understand it in order to make make a difference so we've had to focus somewhere and obviously what better market to to focus than the biggest one there is the second thing AI is just such a new category that we wanted we wanted to build the brand to build a category yeah. and if you want to do a proper category design you probably want it in the market where a lot of eyes are looking up to so this is why we're, we chose the US because we wanted, we thought AI could be very big yeah. and we wanted to do this right from the beginning.
1: Yeah, and um, at that time, when you guys were first starting out in the US healthcare system, what other um, AI companies doing similar, with a similar product were out there at that time? And, oh, wow. And, yeah, and we'll get into, I wanna, a little bit later, I wanna get into competition versus collaboration. But I'm just curious, like at that point in time, was there anybody where you're like, oh gosh, these guys are, are, you know, they might beat us to it. Or was there anything like that?
0: There were a lot of companies. So the problem of AI, especially in the early days that there were like hundreds of companies, right? At least dozens, I would say. But if you look at, there is this big radiology conference called RSNA and, uh, you're, you're probably very well aware, but, uh, uh, but there, there was an AI section there with over 100 companies, which is oh my you know, just crazy, yeah. right? Yeah. So the problem wasn't even a single company. It was just a noise. People yeah. were just bombarded with like this AI and that AI and what does that mean? So that was definitely there when we started. There were amazing pioneers in those early days. I can name a few. Uh, Zebra, I don't know mm-hmm. if you, you remember them, analytic, arduous, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, max so a lot of great companies that are doing kind of things in that vicinity i do think we've had a different story even from the early days in terms of the platform and how broad we can be and want to be so i think we always had that playing for us but we definitely were aware that there were so many companies and even if it's not a single one you need to compete again it's much more about you know, being able to be the signal above the noise somehow. Yeah. That I yeah. think was a b- big focus point.
1: Yeah. That signal to noise ratio is huge with, with startups. I mean, we don't realize it, but I mean, you were probably well aware of it at that time, but, um, the rest of us just see like a few big players nowadays, right. That are, they've come to the forefront. How many of those yeah. people that were at RSNA back then? I uh, just non-existent anymore. Right. A lot of them probably just died out. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how that happens and you guys persevered and, and, and you made it out. And, and so now let's, let's come back, let's come up to present day. Um, how many hospitals use it currently or practice, practice groups and hospitals?
0: Yeah, I will say sometimes it's hard, hard to count even hospitals because, you know, we have some very big tele-radiology practices, right? So, you know, one can read for a hundred hospitals, but we estimate about, um, over a thousand hospitals at this point, which is worldwide, but I think that's, in three years. <laughs> that's pretty wow, pretty that's really rapid pretty growth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and for our listeners, what all does A Doc currently help detect? So we already mentioned hemorrhagic stroke, but tell us what the other you know product lines are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I, I will say that I, I think the the thinking on the market should be different when thinking about AI. It's not just about a single disease. Uh-huh. I think it's much more about a use case or a setting, if that makes sense. Okay. So for example, one of our, the biggest reasons to adopt AI is ED throughput, right? Uh, but it's not about a single disease. It's not that we detect PE and that improves your ED throughput alone. It's a, right. the fact that we can detect right now, nine different diseases, plus we have a platform that integrates, you know, other companies which reaches to 15 diseases. Now you're talking about how to move the needle on an ED throughput, right? Yeah. So you've spoken with Eric Esciaglu from Novant, yeah, You know, the reason they, ad- one of the reasons they adopted AI was how do you make sure that your ED uh, is moving faster? And with AI, you can improve the, you know, you can prioritize patients for radiology, which in turn impacts downstream. So ED throughput is a big one. And there we have a lot of different diseases we can detect. It's a pulmonary embolism and stroke and brain bleeds and rib fractures and pneumothorax and uh, brain aneurysm and probably forget it, free area in the abdomen and spine fracture. So there's a yeah. bunch, but I think that's the value of AI. It's not about yeah. a one thing. It's yeah. about the package.
1: Well, I'm glad that you clarified that for, for me because I'm a radiologist. So I'm just thinking yes. of one, you know, disease process at a time, but you're right. You know, in Eric Eskioglu's perspective and a lot of these, you know, CMOs and and probably just to get buy-in from these hospital systems is like, they want to know yeah how. How does it improve our throughput exactly. in the hospital? Yeah.
0: What's that's the, that's the bigger picture, right? Exactly. And you know, people think about imaging AI as something that is, is for So yes, obviously radiologists are the leaders of this and the bearers of change and the champions of AI, but a part of the value is not in the radiology department. It's actually yeah. downstream. It's about how radiology impacts. And you're, by the way, you're, you're an IR, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And for you as an interventionalist there is even bigger value because AI can be the trigger of whole workflows. One of our biggest products right now is a P care activation product where you know you can detect um and triage, you know, PE patients and then alert both the radiologists with the IR with the care teams making sure the teams can collaborate and communicate on those patients and making sure you can treat uh, patients more appropriately. So it's not just about, so there's a different settings, right? We have the interventionalist-focused AI, we have the neurointerventionally focused AI, you have the ED AI, you have the outpatient AI, and I think it all under a unified enterprise platform. And I think that's the way AI should be handled and thought about.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we just had Karen Gonzalez from Jefferson on the show. Um, she talked about how they use it on with their PERT team, right? And how important exactly. it is. Exactly. that's yeah, great. It's it's really it's really great, and so and and you know I I saw in the news recently on a LinkedIn post that you guys just got FDA approval for pneumothorax detection, correct? Right, Uh, and that's great. I do a lot of lung biopsies, so you know if it if it can pick that up before the radiologist gets to it uh, or I get to it, because you know we're busy doing case after case. And it's like, oh my gosh, I got to check that x-ray on my patient from nine o'clock. You know, it's, here it is. One, you know, I got to get him out of the hospital. And uh, it would be amazing to just get a, a notification as soon as it's done. Hey, they got a moderate pneumo, bring him down for a chest tube, you know?
0: Yeah. And I will, I will add one more One more thought about it because AI, I think there are kind of two futures with AI. One of the futures is where AI is, is going to, so we all talk about healthcare data is very siloed. Mm -hmm. And AI can be actually things that makes us even more siloed because like it increases efficiency and help you do your work better. That's one version of AI. And you see that with a lot of solutions these days are they're really triggered to one specialist to help them. But I think there is another possibility, which is what we're trying to do, where AI is there to help break the silos and facilitate cross-team collaboration. So for example, one of the best use case for the PERT and, 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 you know, the PE example, I think is really great there because one of the pr- problems there is that you, you, it's not a decision you make yourself. It's a team decision oftentimes, right? You need to have a cross team collaboration. But the question is, which is a key question, when do you activate the team? When, when is that workflow of, hey, let's huddle everybody and think about the patient? When does this happen? Yeah. And today it's very manually triggered. And because of that, a lot of patients fall between the cracks because you're not activating the team when you should. Uh, university hospitals, for example, unrelated to ADOC, they did a research. They found out that about 75% of intermediate to high-risk PE patients, they don't get uh, a PERT consultation, hmm. which means for the, the audience member, it means that the, 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 the specialist, the PE specialist isn't being alerted on about 75% of yeah. relevant patients. How crazy, crazy is that?
1: Yeah, And now
0: crazy. with AI, you can then close the loop on that, right? Now AI right. can be a tool that it really fosters that cross-team collaboration. And I, that's yeah. what gets us really excited.
1: Yeah. So, it, I mean, you're cutting out the the middleman, the radiologist, who has to then look at it and then call up the the referring doc who ordered the study, right? Because it's activating a team to let them know.
0: Well, okay. I think that's a really good question. It's not definitely not cutting out the middleman uh, or or moving in parallel the radiologist still needs to approve but but the problem is actually not for the radiologist it's after the radiologist that's where yeah. oftentimes it's you know ED physicians which are doing an amazing job uh, oftentimes don't have you know haven't been necessarily trained on the relevant processes so at that point in time after the radiologist actually that's where the cross team collaboration needs to happen and and oftentimes doesn't happen so it's not about missing or anything like that it's about yeah. patients that are missed but then like they don't do the, the, some something in the system makes it that the the broader team isn't activated. So that's what we want to do. It's not replacing anybody. Not cutting the middleman. It's just streamlining. It's really the, yeah, just streamlining. Exactly. Yeah, making exactly. it happen
1: faster, more efficient, uh, better for the patient. Clearly, um, yes. because and and speaking of that, cutting <laughs> cutting out the middleman is probably not the best phrase to use. But you know, a lot of I, a lot of radiologists are concerned about AI and replacing their jobs, right? Uh, yeah. We don't want to spend too much time on this because I know you've talked about it on other podcasts and artic- and, and uh, blog articles and whatnot, but can you just help, Susie Bash was talking about this recently, but just help our audience understand you know, for those who are radiologists or even other physicians who are worried about AI replacing their jobs, how it's it's meant to supplement, not replace.
0: I will start by sharing some news for those that don't know. Um, about a week ago, the first fully autonomous AI product got CE clearance, CE marking in Europe. Oh, wow. Replacing radiologies for X-ray reads. Wow. For certain X-ray reads. So let's call it the, the, the threat is there, unfortunately. I do not think that this is how the market would evolve, but but there are, I would say, there are areas where it's going you know, in a certain direction. Yeah. What I... The way I'm thinking about this, and I think the market is as well, AI is gonna come, right, in one shape or another. Where I get excited is where radiologists get involved and help lead to where it's becoming adopted in a way that is more safe, effective, and meaningful to patient care, because I think radiologists have this unique understanding of informatics or of the flow of data. So I think the more they get involved, the more they become the, the champions of AI, The better it will be for the industry because I think they will promote the best and most effective use for it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, And and that's that's where I want to kind of jump into the next question. Is you know, for those who are interested, especially guys just getting out of training, because they're like, okay, this is going to be part of my practice for sure. Yeah, the people later generation, they might be like, I'm going to get out before AI takes over. You know, they're not worried about it whether there's a takeover or not. The the young guys, I don't even know if it's part of radio diagnostic radiology residency curriculum, like they, they, I would think that would be part of. You, you here's here's your uh, deep medicine book on day one. Read yeah. this, and we, we have a whole curriculum on AI and how that's going to be part of your practice. I hope that's happening. I don't know, you know, but do you do you have any in- insight on that? On how radiologists are being trained and if it's part of the training?
0: I think it's it's uh, it's transitioning. It's on the way there. I know the ACR, uh, the American College of Radiology, uh, is really working on this type of curriculum. And I know, so I know there are a lot of people working on it. I don't know if it's has been solved yet for sure, as you've mentioned, like, I don't think we have the curriculum set in place, but I think if you think about the growth of AI, probably in three years, we'll have majority of radiologists using AI already, right? So yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. It has to be, it has to be, we have to be educated on it.
1: Yeah. Um, for sure. So any recommendations, you know, for people who want to get involved in AI projects, you know, are you guys looking for advisors or people that to help test, you know, beta test projects, stuff like that, or, or any companies or projects, you know, of out there who are looking for radiologists to be involved?
0: I I think the answer is yes. I think the vendors us specifically right. And I know a lot of the vendors, they are looking for the clinical collaboration. Um, and we have you know we have a specific program where with every site that wants to do it you know we'll do research customization workflow innovation so i think it's necessary because you know we bring one side of the table um with ai but we need we need the clinical counterpart we know very little of, of the clinical workflow and ai is just at the end of the day it's just a technology right but for yeah. clinical transformation you need to have the clinical yeah. partner so Absolutely, it, honestly, it's not that complicated to get involved. Uh, if you have AI running in your facility, uh, that's obviously very easy, and if not, you know, I know many of the companies, including us, are are interested in doing research and collaborating. We're, we'll be very happy to discuss this as an example. Okay,
1: and you've mentioned in prior interviews how the, the evolution of the space is gonna rely heavily on collaboration, which you just kind of alluded to, with different players yeah. so that collaboration obviously is with your clinical partners, you know big radiology groups, hospital systems. what about within the other AI companies as there collaborations or sharing of data is uh, you know how do the the AI companies out there collaborate if if at all or is it fierce competition
0: yeah, I think it's uh it's definitely not in the first competition end of the spectrum. Uh, there is obviously competitive situations right there always yeah. is. I think where a lot of the collaboration is happening is evolving AI beyond the provider alone. I think we're at the same, so for example, uh, there was a stroke AI company that got uh, reimbursement for a program called NTAP. Mm -hmm. So it's a temporary reimbursement, but it applied to all stroke AI companies. So now I think uh, collaborating on regulatory landscape, reimbursement landscape, AI for like pharma, med device companies, all of those things uh were very collaborative in developing the market. Got and it. I think it's very good that we are, you know, I am very happy that other companies exist to kind of push the envelope, try out new ideas yeah. and, and and build the ecosystem.
1: Otherwise it just falls on you and that's a lot of work. It's about yeah. a
0: lot of work and I yeah. won't think of everything, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. uh it's just uh you know, a Zebra Zebra and and, and and Viz, I can name them, I've been I think instrumental in the reimbursement landscape. Um yeah. and we're very glad for that. Like we've learned, you know, we've adapted, we are doing a lot of that ourselves. And I think it's, we're very thankful that they've, you know, uh, they did that. I think we revolutionized a lot of the other things in the regulatory landscape. I think we've been the first, definitely with so many clearances. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how do you do that? And, and, you know, probably the the forefathers of that triage space. So, and I think it's, I think it's good for everybody that there is this kind of collaboration on those aspects.
1: Great. I was going to ask you a few more personal questions as we wrap up we're on the we're on the hour here elad but anything else you you want our audience to know about ADOC before i ask you a little bit more kind of personal stuff about running a company
0: i think the biggest thing for us the biggest strategic shift we've had is is moving beyond imaging alone and what we've realized is the end of the past year i think we were speaking a lot with c-suite um for hospitals and health systems and like you've mentioned Aaron. They care about the big picture, right? And when you speak with C suite, they're telling us what shares of radiology told us a few years ago. I can't be working with a thousand companies. Right. I just can't. Yeah. So they're all looking for some sort of this holy grail AI enterprise AI platform. Yeah. And and this is the direction we're this is the direction we're heading towards as a company. And the cool thing is when I speak with hospital executives and ask them what's out there, like what's what's the AI. What, what what do you have for like any AI platform? Because I always imagined there, it's somewhere out there, like, you know, maybe not in the imaging, maybe they have something in the ICU right. or the ED yeah. or, or somewhere. I was astounded. The answer is, this is it. Imaging AI is by far the most mature clinical AI space, by far. And that gives, I think, all of us company in the in space, such a massive opportunity to become that enterprise AI platform. So... Kind of the message, I think, is that imaging AI is the beginning, but uh, but it's only the beginning. I think it's going to be part of a broader care transformation journey for AI.
1: Yeah, you have, you have other companies like uh, theater.io. They're doing some uh, very innovative things on the surgery Incredible. space. To the audience, I highly recommend reading Deep Medicine. I just finished it, where he every chapter is discussing a different, basically, implementation of AI in in medicine and you know he covers nutrition surgery genetics uh farm you know pharmaceuticals and then it, i'm probably biased cuz i'm a radiologist but <laughs> the most impressive chapter is the imaging chapter right i mean and and he i think he even mentions you guys by name in that chapter it's like you guys have definitely made the most progress it seems when it comes to pat and it's the pattern recognition specialties right uh pathology radiology and dermatology right and so I I would agree with you. I mean, just from what we've what I've seen out there. But you you're the expert, and I appreciate uh, you uh, letting our audience know about that. So work life balance. Um, you must be very busy traveling a lot. Can you just give us an idea of what you're what you're? I mean, I know you you give a lot of you you're out there speaking on behalf of the company. How do you achieve like a work life balance, if possible, as a CEO of a AI
0: company? Yeah. That's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough one. I don't know what to say if I achieve the work life uh, true work life balance. But what yeah. I will say is that for me, the most important thing is spend as much time with family as possible. Yeah. Uh, so for me, work life balance means that uh, you know whenever I'm home, kind of seven to eight, that's my time with with my little one. Um, I kind of put my. I have two kids, two and a half and six months. Yeah. And I am the, I'm the official, uh, putting to better. I don't bedtime, know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, bedtime, dad, the, Yeah. Exactly, bed, bed, so. Yeah.
1: PJs bath and all that stuff, man. Uh, that's, yes. that's hard work. I, that's probably a lot of times harder than what you did all day, you know, getting those guys down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. She's much more bossy. That's for sure. <laughs> yes. But, but no, that, you're that right for me is most important.
1: That is the golden hour for sure. And my, my kids are older now they're eight and 10, but Probably the favorite part of my day when they were little is doing. that. You're right, and that's what they remember too. You know, I read an article where you. T- I think it was from like 2019, pre-COVID. We were talking about speed listening to books on Audible yeah. at like three times the speed. I can barely do one and a half, two because the voice starts to bother me. You know, the high pitched voice. Yeah, I-, I wanted to ask you since I had you. Did you gradually train yourself, like, to get there, or was it kind of big jumps?
0: No, it was very gradual. It was kind of this uh, sense that, oh, yeah, if I'm listening in, like, 1.9, then, you know, why not 2? It's the same. Uh, and then yeah. if I'm at 2, <laughs> why not 2.1? So, it, it was very gradual. I, I will say that at some point of time, I just can't listen in normal speed. I'm just like, oh, my God, they're it's so slow, slow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah. Yes. So now I I'm, I've ruined normal speed for me, but uh, yeah, I keep I keep listening. I love it.
1: Yeah, it's great. It's really great. Um, I love I love it. And I, I'm hopefully we can get more medical education stuff out there too uh, in Audible. Form. Of course. Yeah, that's kind of our goal here. Backtable is trying to get more uh, audio education uh, out there. But um, all right, well, I that's all I got for you. Uh, any
0: last word is what you what are you reading right now? The one I'm reading right now is Play Bigger, okay. Which is about I I love it. It's about category design. So really, they talk about the fact that all these you know big companies, Uber, WeWork, uh, all of them, they've they've created a new category which they led, and I think it's so essential for AI. It it is such a new category. No RFPs. Like you're, you're building something new, and we need to think about it in this light. How do we build a category that's going to be transformational enough for the healthcare industry
1: very cool i'll have to pick that one up Elot, thank you so much for spending this uh sunday afternoon with us really appreciate your time and uh, hope i get to meet you in person one of these rsnas or uh, some entrepreneurial meeting um i can buy a beer or coffee but uh thank you again for coming on the show
0: i would love that thank you aaron thank you so much for listening if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley,
1: Aaron Fritz, and Eric Amaker.
0: Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Anne Dang, social
1: media and PR by Chi Ding and Dana Parker.
0: Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.